I was 23 years old. I was invited by a group of lost boy musicians to join their crew out in Neverland, also known as Los Angeles. So I decided to go. And while I was there, I experienced one of the most formative years of my life as a musician, as an artist, as a human being. In California, I found there was no ceiling of possibility. There was no limit of wild, imaginative becoming. And of course, like all musicians living in Silver Lake before Silver Lake became Silver Lake, I was totally broke. So to make ends meet, barely, I worked at a vintage clothing store called Shabon. This quirky, eclectic, tiny little boutique vintage clothing store on Beverly in West Hollywood is where I spent most of my days recovering from my late nights and getting ready to play more shows. And it's also where I met today's guest, Yana Pillet. Yana is a multilingual filmmaker born in Cameroon and based in Los Angeles. She directed Waters and produced Flow, two films that screened at domestic and international film festivals. Upon graduating from the School of Cinematic Arts at the University of Southern California, she was hired as an assistant to an Oscar-nominated showrunner, Michael Green, on the critically acclaimed Starz television series, American Gods. Yana is a 2018 associate of the Investigative Reporting Project at UC Berkeley School of Journalism and is currently a staff writer on the upcoming Netflix series, Blue Eye Samurai. And on top of all these things, Yana is currently working on a documentary film called Father. This documentary is exploring the secret, hidden lives of children of Catholic priests. Yana herself is the daughter of a Catholic priest, and she wanted to look at the role of the church, the vow of celibacy, in those hidden lives and relationships, and hoping that somehow in telling these stories, the children of priests and the mothers could regain a sense of dignity and place. When I met Yana, it was at such a formative time in my life. I was in complete freefall and transition. I no longer felt like I belonged in Christianity, and I didn't know what was next. So I was reading a lot about feminine spiritualities and just trying to find my way. For me, Yana was the embodiment of a woman who had touched on her own sovereignty. She's so regal and beautiful and profound, as you'll experience in this conversation, so full of grace and generosity. So I knew I wanted to reach out to her and discuss her current project, but specifically to talk about the truth-telling of the filmmaker, the opening of the aperture of our lens to include the stories that we even hide from ourselves. So with that, let's dive right in to episode two of season two of Unknowing with Yana Bile. Yana, I'm kind of freaking out because it's just so good to sit and see your face and be with you again. And what I usually like to do at the beginning of the show is ask my guests about the map that you were handed growing up. And the way I describe that is all of us were handed some version of a map, whether it's religious beliefs or just experiences or cultural experiences. And that map has a way of um, sending us out on a voyage in a particular direction in our lives. So 
Yana, I want to I want to ask you about the first map that shaped the trajectory of your journey. What was the first map that you were given that kind of helped you make sense of reality? Wow, <laughs> that's such a great and interesting question, and it is really irrelevant to me right this moment because I am in New Hampshire shooting um, an interview for a segment of a documentary that I'm working on. The documentary is about the secret lives of children of Catholic priests. As you know, my dad was a Catholic priest. And I think that the first roadmap that I was given, or one of the first, I should say, because I think it's several things. I cannot reduce it to one thing. Unfortunately, the main one that I was given because of the circumstances of my birth, the first one was one of secrecy. Because as you know, Catholic priests are not supposed to have sex, let alone have children. And so when a Catholic priest has a child or children, a lot of times those children actually have to basically live a life of secrets. So I think that that was the first one or one of the first one. But it would not be really fair of me to leave it there because I think that, yes, there were secrets and lies. And I think that all those things shape me, even as an adult. And that's the reason why I'm making the film, because there are a lot of things that made me who I am that I'm having a hard time dealing with and that I'm sort of hoping to face, explore, unearth in this process of making the film so that I can continue to create a new map for myself. But like I said, I don't think it would be a fair assessment to live it as, you know, the first map I was given was a map of secret. Because I think that what ended up happening in that process is that there are a lot of positive things there. And one of them is my relationship with my family, specifically with my mother and, and my siblings. I think that we're really close because we had to trust each other because we understood really young that we had to do everything we could to um, protect our secret, our family. And so that brought us really, really close um, to one another. But I also think that I, I learned a couple of things from my parents really young that I think also are a very good representation of who I am or how I walked in this world. I think that my parents were two of the most generous people that I've ever, ever, ever met. And I and I try to do that. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm not trying to say I'm a generous person, but that is my intention. And this, to me, is not a matter of giving money to people or anything like that, or like any material things, which I'm not saying I'm not doing. But that's not it. It's not just that. It's understanding your place in the world and being aware of other people's existence or needs. Um, and so you're not just generous because you're giving a gift to someone or a, a material gift to someone. I think that sometimes just being able to listen to someone and giving someone the gift of your presence is something that is a value. And I think that is a really rare thing because now, nowadays, especially with like, we get really busy and stuff, but also how generous you are with your, with your time, with your expertise, um, how you lend the hand when someone really needs something, anything. Those are values that actually really matter to me 
a lot. And uh, again, it's, I'm not saying that I'm there, but that's what I look up to. Or those are the people that I look up to when I think about better, a higher expression of my humanity. I think there's that. And then the last thing from my dad, especially, is the desire to learn. I feel like I'm putting myself in a position where I'm always a student. And I think that those are things that I learned as a child and they've never left me. There's a thread for me as I listen to you, Yana, which is that um, almost the life of secrecy taught you to not make assumptions, mm. <laughs> to, to not make assumptions about other people, but also to live with a certain level of generosity of spirit because because you were having to create that generosity for yourself and your own family. And I mean, I guess I'm wondering, you know, I usually like to ask this question about what was what was the rupture, the first rupture that you remember to your map. And yet it sounds to me like the map you were handed already had this rupture of the secret that you were keeping in your family. And I guess I'm wondering, did the love within your family allow you to transcend the secrecy or did you feel trapped by that secrecy? What was the experience of that for you? And when did you, I guess, find, <laughs> find a way beyond it or a, a way to free yourself from it? Um, I do, I do believe that there was, and there is a lot of love there that sort of, I'm not sure that it actually transcended the secrecy, but I think that it made it easier to uh, accept. I do not have any recollection of the moment I actually found out that my dad was a priest and that I was not to divulge that information to anyone ever. I have no recollection of that. I have the feeling that I've always known it. I've always, as far as I can remember being a conscious human being, I've always known that. And I've always known not only that my dad was a priest, but also that I couldn't tell anyone about it. I couldn't talk about it because it was dangerous and it would, you know, it could put our lives in danger. So what I know is that I had my own ways of dealing with it. Um, it was like, this is not a reality. This doesn't exist. So then I feel like it forced me into this really weird space where I had to start creating lies, basically. Like, so if someone were to ask me who my dad was, I came up with fictitious character that was supposed to represent my dad. Um, he was a professor. My dad was actually really a professor. And I cannot remember the name that I gave that character. I think that what's really interesting is, is that I don't really know that I really, I could see the full picture of that situation when I lived home. I had to move away from home to France with my sisters and then move away again, <laughs> further away from everyone to really have a grasp of like what that whole situation actually meant and how it affected me. Distance actually allowed me to have a maybe a clearer perspective on what that whole situation really was. You know, that makes so much sense in terms of what your vocation is currently as a filmmaker, because you were needing to like expand the aperture of your lens. You were needing to pull back to have a sense of the context of what was really happening in your lives mm -hmm. at that time in your family's life. And, and so I want to ask you about 
disassociation and imagination. And I'm, I'm very curious about this topic within the framework of trauma, <laughs> but specifically how dislocation in, you know, the life of a child or having to move around a lot um, animates a certain level of storytelling or imagination in order to survive almost. Uh, a child's mind can create a, a more cohesive story to kind of hold the fragmented experience of their reality. And I'm, I'm wanting to ask you specifically about about immigration and moving around as a child, because I know that you left Cameroon. I know that you went to France, to Paris. So I want to ask you about those transitions. Walk us through that journey, and and were there were there were there gifts in the midst of the pain of of all of that dislocation? Yeah, this is a hard one for me. Before I go into the gifts, I need to acknowledge the fact that it wasn't my choice necessarily. You know. Like my sister um, was working with uh, Eye Doctor Without Borders for years and she would come back to Cameroon every other year and they would build those uh, mobile clinics. And so she came back one year and she asked us if we wanted to go to France. I was like, yeah, I was super excited. I actually thought that I was going to France for the summer and I was going to come back. And the next thing I know, they were looking for schools for us. And then we, we moved to France and, and that was it. It was horrible. The first year was just, I, I was crying like all the time. It's like, I just want to go home. Like I could not, I just couldn't find my footing. I couldn't find, I didn't feel that I belonged and people were not really tolerant, especially kids in school, just impossible. So for the longest time, and I think even now to a certain degree, I think that it's always like a mixed bag for me because I cannot dissociate my life from the historic, political, social background of this whole thing, you know, like how the Africans started going to France, colonization, um, how I speak uh, French some English, <laughs> a little bit of Spanish. Those are not really my languages. So it's always very difficult for me to start looking at all the positive things because they come from so much pain, you know? But they're there. Languages, for example, it's a thing. Um, but I also think that traveling reminded me, if I did not know that, if I wasn't sure about that, that whether we acknowledge it or not, our oneness is a real thing. Mm -hmm. And it's not even in like a kumbaya kind of way, you know, because I'm not sure that I'm necessarily that kind of person, but it's more of like, this is a reality, <laughs> you know, like the basic elements that you find in our bodies, you find in the universe. You know, you can't separate that. You can try to. So I think that definitely traveling, living in different spaces, being a part of different realities definitely made me more open and hopefully more compassionate. Um, this is not to say that whoever lives in Cameroon or in France, for that matter, is not like that. I'm just saying this is what traveling, meeting new people, um, did to me. I'm, I'm very curious and fascinated by the human experience. I, 
I'm fascinated by all those mechanisms that make us do the things we do or make us be who we are. And I think that traveling definitely helps with that a lot. Like just figuring out those things or just being able to observe them. Yeah, because it's, as you said, when you were describing your childhood experience of creating a character, of writing a character for your dad to kind of uphold the family secret, you know, already you were a student of stories. You were aware of storytelling, of the power of storytelling as belonging, you know? And so I'm reflecting on how the multivocality of your experience created a greater sensitivity in you that you could listen, you know, that you could listen to nuances in people's voices or listen to stories differently because because you did. You had a broader world experience, which as you named so graciously, wasn't a choice. Um, but I, I want to ask you, Yana, about getting into film. Can you walk us through the trajectory of that journey? I mean, like what first turned you on to storytelling at that level? And when did you begin to dream about getting behind the lens and creating movies? I think that it did not start in France. It started when I was much younger. You just brought it up. There is something to be said about having to create a fictional character to be my dad. I think that from the moment I started doing that, it just became a very natural thing for me to actually create stories. Like I start, I, I've been doing that since I was a child. Like I had, I remember I had a cousin that I really liked a lot. And every time she was visiting, we would go and hide somewhere. We would find a really quiet place and hide and tell each other really elaborate stories <laughs> like we create we were creating these worlds <laughs> like it, it was so fascinating I'm thinking about it now but like we had like we had families and we had kids we were like nine <laughs> we had all these things these imaginary um lives that we were living <laughs> and I kept that because it was so comforting mm-hmm. I also remember around the same age I I would write, because I had all these ideas and stories, I would write plays. And then when my youngest sister, (laughs) we would actually get our neighbors and our our friends to come and watch the plays. Like we'll put them up and we would get our friends to perform in the play. (laughs) And then we often got people to actually pay to come and see the show. Yes, you did. <laughs> and then, <laughs> but then we'll act, so I think the funny thing is that we would actually get the money and give it back. No, and get that candy and then re- redistribute the wealth. That's very generous of you. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that's actually where it all started. I think that's the, the very beginning of my journey. And so I moved to France, thought about doing architecture for a while. And then I realized I didn't, I really love architecture. I'm fascinated by architecture. But then there was a part of me that wanted to do architecture just because I was like, if I make enough money, then I don't need anyone and I can just pay and make my own movies. And, and then one day I was just like, that's silly. Just don't go to... Do the thing. <laughs> don't do the roundabout thing. Do the thing. Exactly. Just do the thing. And so... I started writing. I got a couple of small plays produced in Paris, and I was also acting a little bit at the time. 
And when I moved to the U.S. about 20 years ago, even the landscape, the movie TV landscape was not the same here, and let alone in France. And there were not a lot of opportunities for women, especially African women. Um, it has, that part hasn't changed a lot, but it's better than like 15, 20 years ago. It became very apparent to me that things are not going to work for me there. Also, I was much more interested in um, the movie industry in the U.S. than I was there, although I love French cinema, I I love all kinds of cinema. So like, I'm not trying to diss anything, but I had a preference for some American indie films, and I knew that I wanted to be here. So I basically, <laughs> I had a thousand dollars to my name. I knew one person in Los Angeles, one person only. I spoke no English. I mean, like. <laughs> Not even basic English. It was, I just had a few words. And I had a suitcase full of shoes and books and another suitcase with clothing and uh, a round trip ticket for a month. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to go. No matter whatever happens is going to happen. So I got on the plane and uh, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> I let my, the second leg, of my round trip ticket expire. And when that expired, it was just like, okay, you know, sink yeah. or swim. I don't have money to go back. So I just have to make it happen. Yeah, it was uh, painful. There was a lot of crying. There was a lot of learning and growing. And uh, I would not do that again this way. I would not. I did not have that in me. But I would do it again and again and again, especially in LA. I think there's something about it, Leo. So like, it's not just being in the US and like specifically being in LA. I love that city. It makes me feel like myself. And I started taking writing classes, acting classes. And then I moved to New York. I created a small production company in New York. I produced, I did a couple of things. Um, there was like basically two branches in my production company. One when I was doing, where I was doing like a lot of industrial stuff because I needed to eat. And mm -hmm. the other one where I was doing creative stuff and I produced a few things, including my first feature film. And then after a while, I realized that I, I needed to brush up on my film language, my film grammar. I felt like it wasn't strong enough. And I wanted to have access to things that I felt I did not have access to at the time. And so I moved back to L.A. and I went back to school and I got into USC and that completely changed my life. And um, mm. right out of school, I got to do the things that I actually really wanted to do. And right out of school, I started working with a showrunner. And I, I, I swear to God, I had the feeling that my brain was being rewired. It's just so intense. Wow. There was a, a real need there to make sure that I understood how things actually function at that level. Yeah, I, I I left him and I went to Cameroon to start shooting my movie. And then as I was doing that, COVID happened and I started writing again. And I wrote something that people seemed to like and that allowed me to get into a room as a staff writer. And that's what's going on with me now, in addition to like the documentary. Yeah. So I want to ask about the the decision to work on the documentary. And I also want to talk about a couple elements of what you just brought up because on the show, I like to address everybody who's listening as artists. I'm like, 
you're all artists, whether you think you are mm. or not, because you're creating a storyline with the choices that you make. You know, so you are screenwriters, you are actors, you're producers, you're filmmakers, you're painting the picture of your life, you're creating the soundtrack of your life. So I want to touch on this rewiring aspect because in many ways it reminds me of spiritual practice or the gifts or benefits of like, say, meditation, where it's like it helps us create a more stable sense of self that isn't mm -hmm. so disrupted by the small things that happen or it does in a way rewire how we operate in the world. Um, also, experiences of great love or great suffering can do that, too, where it's like you were operating one way and then you completely switch. But I want to ask you about devotion to craft, <laughs> because you have to really have a sense of like animated desire to keep kind of doggedly pursuing, like even for you to realize like I need more language or I need to broaden my skills or I need more tools in my toolbox as a filmmaker. So I'm going to go and have these experiences. And I want to ask about that devotion to craft and how would you describe that sort of passionate pursuit in a way that can apply to people who could be plumbers or, you know, could be like accountants, you know, like whatever. How would you describe the aim of that passionate pursuit of the artist? And like, how can we apply it to our lives in terms of um, the gifts of, of the discipline to devotion? I, I don't know. It's, I think that to me, it's about the love of doing things really well. I did not realize I was competitive until really recently, which is really funny to me because I always feel like I know myself so well. <laughs> I think that there is a sense of like being competitive that I can recognize in me because I'm surrounded by a lot of people who are really, really good at what they do. But I think that there's something beyond that even for me where it's a lot less about being competitive with others and it is about not necessarily being competitive with myself, but like sort of outdo myself continuously and then see like, oh, this is really interesting, but this can be so much better. Mm. You're pushing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Continuously. Learning so that it can get better. I love learning when I watch something and and, and I really love it. <laughs> I want to feel that for my own work and I want people to feel that for what I do. Like I want to be able to craft a story so well that it speaks to someone at different levels. And that's really what I'm interested in. I love to layer things so that it can speak to one person because they find it funny and it could speak to someone else because the character speaks to them or like, you know, like so many different levels of layers and reasons. I'm obsessed with the idea of creating something of substance and specifically with like movies of something that is actually means something. As I'm listening to you talk, Yana, I guess what I'm reflecting on is the fact that that hunger that hunger for more that you're describing as this competitive edge in you. It's almost like your competitive edge is with the infinite mm. possible. Mm. You know, so it's like what I find I'm hearing in what you're saying is that this desire drawn toward the longing of what could be, 
always what could be, what could be better or what could be told or how the story could be layered or what could be a more moving frame or perspective. And I was going to ask you later on in this conversation, but we'll just, we'll get to it now, which is like, how do you find unknowing as a, you know, necessary practice for you as a screenwriter, as a filmmaker, you know, to regularly suspend what it is that you think you know <laughs> to make room for what could be. How is that a practice in your art? A lot of unlearning to me is a lot less about like the process of creating itself than it is about rewiring my brain, rethinking what I think I know about myself. I think that it's much more of like an internal thing for me. I have a very specific example here. English not being my first language and having to learn how to write in English was incredibly difficult. For the longest time, I did not think I could do it. At one point, I remember saying, I'm going to write in French and I'm going to translate it in English. But there's a part of me that never gives up, sadly. And so Wonderfully. <laughs> that part had to like <laughs> wonderfully. And so that part had to keep pushing for more. It's like, you know, we have to do this. And a lot of things in like the unlearning or relearning, the unknowing or relearning for me is to just be like, I thought I couldn't necessarily do this, but I have to keep pushing so that I can actually make this work. So I can actually manifest this, looking at my own limitations. When you've internalized the idea that you have to hide, and if you've done that long enough, you start hiding. And a big part of what I'm working on in this unknowing, relearning process is to learn how to feel comfortable in my skin, claim my voice, reshape it. That's really where I am. I had this image as you were speaking. It was like almost like when the lights go out. And I'm not just talking like the lights dim. I'm talking like you cannot see your hand in front of your face, like imagining that level of, you know, can't see. I suddenly cannot see. And how then our other senses have to kind of take over. Mm. And there's an unknowing on one sense, but then there is an opening or a remembering, a membering to, like being membered again to the rest of us. That, right. you know, the other faculties that we don't rely on, the other languages or the hidden stories that we felt we had to keep kind of down or hidden. And I want to ask you about the moment you decided to work on Father and I'm sure you thought about this for so long, but what was the moment when you chose to leap courageously into, okay, I'm done talking about this as an idea, and now I'm going to go do the thing? I wish I had an answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a slow domino, like just like the snowball rolling down the hill. I honestly don't remember. Okay, this is what happened. I was flirting with it. It was sort of like in the background, but I wasn't really taking it seriously. I can't, it's, it's kind of hard for me to pinpoint exactly when, but when I went back to school, I was taking a pitching class. So you had to come in and pitch three ideas and then the class and the teachers would actually pick one and then you work 
on that idea for the entire semester. I pitched her ideas, and one of them was a documentary about the secret lives of children of Catholic priests, and everyone in the class was like, that one. And I was like, I guess I have to do this now. Shit. I mean, you know, like the fact that I can't now say out loud that my dad is a Catholic priest is so insane for me because I would have never thought that that's something that I could just say with ease. So, yeah, I think that's what happened. Like I I pitched it and people loved it. And I was like, I can't back out of it anymore. And, And also knowing the necessity to me to actually take that on, because again, you know, it's about claiming, reclaiming my voice and I can see how hiding has an impact on my life. I want to believe that I'm a courageous person, but I also feel a lot of restraint. And so I often wonder what my life would have been like if I did not have to go through that or if I had addressed it a little earlier in my life. I can't help but like ask myself that. Yeah, it's painful to um, to reconcile ourselves with the happenings <laughs> that are beyond our control. And yet I think where I see unrestrained courage in you, Yana, is in how you are telling your story, but you're also, you're a storyteller, which is itself a kind of freeing expression that, helps free other people into that same kind of courage. Even just like the the willingness to be vulnerable and to see that vulnerability as a strength, as you've demonstrated with both culture and language, transcending the limitations in order to to do the thing. I mean, like that animates my courage right now <laughs> as I'm trying, trying to do the thing and <laughs> struggling to do the thing. But I mean, you've always been this way. You've always in my view, been courageous. I mean, I remember at Shaban, you would have these things that you would write and you'd bring them in and you'd be working on them. And I'm like eating Thai food on the side, just like slowly leaning over so that I could read. <laughs> just like incomplete and utter awe. I mean, to me, you were like goddess personified, you know, and you still are. So it's so true. But it's funny, we don't see ourselves that way. We have no idea how we animate other people's creativity. But speaking of courage, I want to ask you about the conversation with your family. And I know your father has passed, but even the courage to go there and talk about this. And I'm sure there were members of your family that were not happy about that idea. So can you tell us about that resistance that you encountered and and how you kind of moved past it? My dad is a C, so there's no pushback there, really. Um, I have to say, though, I have to say... They have been very magical little happenings um, throughout the process of making this film. I'm going to give you one example, which mm-hmm. is an answer to like how, I, how what I think my dad thinks about this. We went to Cameroon. We were going to his village uh, because I wanted to go in his house and I wanted to have access to some of his writings and like pictures and stuff. I was not allowed to go into his house, but that that's a whole different conversation because his family basically like kept me out of um, of the house. Um, really, really painful uh, situation. So we went to his village 
And I wanted flowers. I wanted to bring flowers to his grave. And I, we didn't have time to actually get flowers. We left really early in the morning. And here we are in the middle of nowhere, really. Like, it's like deep inside the country. Okay. So one of the producers who was with us is like, what, what's going on with the flowers? I was like, oh, we couldn't find any flowers and stuff. And it's okay. We don't have the flowers. And I kid you not. Within like 10 minutes of me saying that, they're like, it's like super early in the morning. It's like 7.30 in the morning. I said, well, maybe that's not super early. It's like pretty early, 7, 7.30 in the morning when we get into the village. And there are these kids on the side of the road with flowers oh my God. in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I was like, if I put this in the movie, people are going to say that I'm lying. That or I that you staged it. Yeah. And so we stopped the car and I ran to them and I was like, hey, I really want, where do you get the flowers? They were like, oh, on Wednesday we decorate the school or something like that. And I was like, can I please buy the flowers? Please. And so I give them money and they give me flowers. I got flowers for my dad. <laughs> but that kind of stuff has been happening throughout. So I'm going to think. I'm going to think that my dad is okay with me making this movie mm-hmm. because I've had mm-hmm. way too many signs like that that make me feel comfortable with this process. The rest of my family, not so much. My younger sister is okay with it, but the rest of my family, is like my, my mom would rather me not doing this. And it's been really painful because I, I have a really good relationship with my mother and my intention is not to hurt her feelings in any kind of way, but... It's also my story, and I hope that she understands that this is not against her, and that is something that's really important to me. So, you know, that journey outside of our our family of origins wishes <laughs> is, you know, I think is a relatable one for I think many people listening because in in different circumstances we all kind of have to have the courage to tell our story or reclaim our story. Regardless of what our family of origin says about that, mm. there's something that occurs when we're willing to unknow our belonging to that family structure in order to know who we really are, to like let go of one form of belonging and then we find a deeper belonging in ourselves. And, um, you know, I want to ask you about the journey that you've been on making this film because you're still deep in it. You're in it right now. And some of my favorite memories of the two of us in Shaban is talking about feminine spirituality. And for me, I was like <laughs> just a baby. I left Michigan, come to LA and working together side by side, you know, there was so much in me that was hungering for a paradigm beyond the father, <laughs> beyond the patriarchal spirituality that I had grown up in. And I just remember the conversations I had with you were a portal into feminine spirituality, a landscape of feminine spirituality. And I'm curious about the, you know, there's a potential parallel story that you're telling in this journey about the reclamation of the feminine. You know, the title of your project is Father. Obviously, it's about this experience of being the daughter of a Catholic priest or the hidden stories of children of Catholic priests. But is is there like a, a harmonizing thread here about your own homecoming to your embodied self 
as a woman and sort of the embrace of a spirituality that could actually make room for that because there sure as hell isn't room for that in Christianity. <laughs> honestly, honestly, I think that my true unknowing really happened when clearly I was born Catholic, right? And I went to Catholic school from a really young age. Um, I had to go to church. Um, I was baptized and I took my first communion and I was confirmed and all that stuff, like all the sacraments. Um, And then, I mean, the early sacraments. And then uh, we had neighbors who were Protestants and we started going to church with them at some point. I felt like there was something missing for me in the Catholic church where I felt like I really needed more. And so I'd started exploring other things. It was insatiating to me, but I think that because I was born in, in, in that, I could not leave. But then I started remembering that as a child, there's like a very specific event that I remember. I was in church. It's like a Catholic church. It's like the, it's it's called the Cathedral de Yaoundé. It's like it was at the time the main cathedral in, in Yaoundé, um, my hometown. I remember being in there and watching the congregation lost in prayer. And like in the way they were singing and that devotion, I could see it in them. But I could not see it in me. I was a child. I was like six or seven years old. And I, I think this is like one of my oldest memories. And I was just like, whatever this is, whatever it is that these people are feeling, I don't feel that. And I was so clear to me. So I realized that my youngest self knew all along that it was not for me. And, I, and I'm not, this is not against religion in any kind of way. I'm just acknowledging something that I know about myself. And to me, coming to terms with stopping pretending, which is, you know, a big part of my foundation, stop pretending and stop being afraid of like something happening to me because I'm not doing supposedly what I think I'm supposed to do. And then that realization sort of like collided with my youngest self already knowing what I needed to do for myself. When that happened, I just let go. I was like, I don't have to pretend anymore. Mm. I don't have to pretend I care anymore. (laughs) If as a child, I know this, this is my truth. Like, and so like that process of letting go unknowing was really intense but extremely necessary and so incredibly freeing because I'm an animist. It's like the basic African belief system. It's like this, like the oneness of all (laughs) and trying to treat people the way you want to be treated. It's like basic principles do make those make so much sense to me. And I feel like I try to go back to those like basic principles that made so much more sense to me than trying to go to church. Again, not criticizing the church. Oh, don't don't worry. I am. (laughs) I'll take I'll take responsibility for that. Sorry. Keep going. You know, like people are really happy with it and they're doing what they're doing. I'm just talking about myself. 
as a woman, as an African. There are so many things in that book, in the system, that did not make sense to me. And I was not, my spirit was not aligned with it. And so I had to let go. It was like day and night. The moment I released it, the amount of freedom that I felt, like I've never experienced it in my body. It was just like, oh, I don't have to lie anymore about this. Like I just, mm. I can just be me and I can just be yeah. completely unafraid of hell or like any of it. It's not my story. Oh, Yes, Yana. I have to continue building my own story because my child self knew it so clearly. No judgment. Because I again I, I remember like being really little and looking at this people and it's like faith is a real thing. I could not connect with that faith. I still haven't. And I think that sometimes it's important to be able to to let go so that something new can happen, so that there's room to actually build something that looks more like you, that is more of a reflection of yourself. I don't necessarily feel the need to claim a feminist identity because I don't know what else I would be. Like, this, it's me. I, I'm human. I don't have to, like, yeah, I'm a feminist. This is it right here. Yes, you know, yes. like, I don't, I, I don't even feel like I need to claim that. Um, I think that there's so much damage that has been done, is being done um, through patriarchy. But being able to embrace your feminine your female power and and like sit on that throne of femininity and embracing it and feeling comfortable with it and find strength in it without necessarily it becoming like a version of what like male power looks like it's something that means a lot to me i'm remembering a moment when we were having these conversations. And I was reading The Dance of the Dissident Daughter by Sumant Kidd and Karen Armstrong and Clarissa Pinkola Estes, just reading a lot of this sort of liberatory, you know, reclamation of, of feminine spirituality. And again, that is not, it's not held in an equal seat or posture as male power. It's a different kind of homecoming. It's homecoming to relationality. It's homecoming to the oneness that you spoke of. It's it's homecoming to the body as not being problematic. And I remember we were having this conversation like this at some point while we were working and you just kind of casually invited me to go to a full moon ceremony where like this group of women would just take off all their clothes and just go like go into the ocean on a full moon. And like you were initiating me back into this sort of bodily homecoming of this being enough. And I, I couldn't stop laughing a minute ago because you're like, yeah, I don't need to claim a title for what it is. <laughs> because you're just like, this is what, I, this is what it is. So this what, is what I, it is. I sort of appreciate about this whole arc of this conversation, which is this movement out of the, the hidden spaces, you know, this reclamation of the telling of your story courageously mm. is to say, 
that this authenticity of being ourselves is divinely enough. You know, like I'm even thinking about how you were like thinking about going into architecture. It's like we don't even need an architecture around that fact. We don't need to build a belief system around that fact. It's just that homecoming of self, that willingness to vulnerably share who we are authentically, that is love. That is mm-hmm. gift because it's that is what what connects us to each other and establishes that oneness. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's something I'm going to, yeah, there's something also to be said or to add about this claiming of your body because we're bombarded with all kinds of messages about our bodies. We learn really young how to hate them. We are taught not to be really comfortable with them. And that includes body image, Uh, sexuality, sensuality, like the way we walk or carry ourselves and stuff and how it's perceived in society, right? Just learning to be comfortable with that, to be comfortable in your body, to be comfortable with your desires, to be comfortable with your sexuality, whatever it is. It is so incredibly empowering to just be like, this is it. This is me. And like, even if it's not a complete embrace of who you are, but knowing that you're working towards it, and then that somewhere out there, there's like a fuller expression of that, and that that's your target, and that you're moving in that direction is incredibly powerful, and and I believe really rewarding too. Yeah. And it's also how I would define success as an artist, Mm. (laughs) you know, the fullness of that expression, because I think we also get trapped in these ideas created by capitalism of you're successful when you're making this much money or this many people are following and listening to you or whatever it is. When in reality, I believe the true success of an artist, ergo everybody, is that fullness of expression that you just described. Because I can't think of anything else that love compels in me but to give everything that I am away. Mm. Like, everything. (laughs) I don't, I don't, I don't know how else I, I could describe love. Mm. But that generosity that you were talking about, that like, that's life force to me. That's what I see all around me in nature is the willingness to just keep pouring out more. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I don't have anything to add to that. I completely agree. I, it means a lot to me. Mm. Mm. Um, I like to wrap up these conversations, Yana, by asking about where unknowing is calling you or what you're having to practice unknowing around. But um, I look up to you so much as my sister. I just, the formative time of being in LA with you was, is very difficult to describe. Shabon. I mean, it was just a year, but for me, it was a year that, that completely changed the course of my life on so many levels. And you embodied a type of sovereignty and assuredness in yourself and your body and in your feminine power and your willingness to doggedly pursue the creative endeavors that you were doing. You may not have felt like you were there at that time, but from where I was sitting, 
you were there at that time. You embodied those things. And so Thank you. I want to put a little bit more of a personal spin on this, on this final question and ask, what advice do you have for me in this moment? Or, or I would just say like a word of encouragement about how to keep embracing unknowing. How, did, how do I, and then through me, the listener, how do we continue to let go in trust that there is more that's going to catch us? if we're willing to let go of the small boxes that we think we need to stay stuck or hidden in? Oh my God, I, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm not going to answer that question because I don't necessarily feel that I have an answer for people. What I know is that I'm not sure where you are in your journey, but I cannot even imagine what else you have to do. Because like from where I stand when I'm looking at you, you there. And I also, I have to preface this by saying that I see only like little bits and pieces of things here and there, right? Or like I hear, but the fact that you actually have this platform that you're creating that is allowing people to have this in-depth conversation, insightful conversation, that to me says so much about how far along in this journey you are. Um, I honestly don't feel like I have anything else <laughs> to add to your conversation. And I'm not being humble. It's been so incredibly wonderful to observe you from afar and mm. just watch you blossom into this like badass woman. And I'm in awe. That's all I have to say. You know, this is one of my things. This is one of my unknowing things is, um, to stop giving advice to people. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's like sometimes people don't want to hear it. And sometimes, um, okay, I'm going to play this game just for one second. <laughs> I think that being open to like those new possibilities doesn't seem like anything, but I feel that it's the beginning. The childlike spirit, my child spirit saved me. I had to go back to my formative years to remember that I already knew these things. And it got confusing because that's what the world does to you, right? But like being able to tap into that was the most amazing thing I gift I could give to myself. Mm. It saved me. Like remembering what the world felt like to me as a six or seven year old, where I felt like I just knew what I knew about myself, which was that you don't have to pretend mm. that this matters to you when it doesn't. Mm. And so then what do I replace that with? Is still the thing that I'm trying to figure out. Yana, for all of the power of your personhood in the courageous reclamation of your story, I am inspired. <laughs> I'm inspired to stop pretending. I'm inspired to let go, to throw off all my clothes and run into the ocean with a bunch of women I don't know, <laughs> to be free. You know, it's... And what I hear you inviting us to is freedom, freedom from hiding and from pretending. And 
I'm so grateful for you and the courage of your story, but also for the work that you're doing in this documentary and for all the ways that you pour yourself out into everything that you do, because it has this ripple effect that you don't even know, (laughs) that you don't even know. So everybody Mm. listening is going to check out the link in the notes of this podcast to be able to see how you can learn more about Yana's project and how you can support it. But Yana, thank you so much for spending some time with me this afternoon. It's meant the world to me. Thank you, sister. Same. I really appreciate you. So we're learning how to open the aperture of our camera's lens to include more of ourselves beyond just the map that we're looking down at, including the secrets, including the freeing truths So here are a few pieces of True North wisdom that I'm taking with me from this conversation. Hiding is a habit. I was really moved by how Yana described that a lifetime of having to keep the secret made her hesitate as an adult, made her second guess herself, made her question whether or not she had the freedom to speak her truth. And as I reflected on this, I realized what a fundamental truth that is, that hiding is a habit. We feed it every time we second-guess ourselves, every time we choose to get smaller, every time we hesitate, every time we let the voices in our heads make a second guess. And man, do I do that. I do it a lot. But I don't want hiding to be a habit. Do you? Second piece of True North wisdom, I loved when Yana found the silver lining of a really difficult experience of having to move around and it not being her choice. The silver lining being, look, we're all one, whether we want to realize it or not. The experience of being in different cultures and forced to learn different languages gave Yana the fluidity, the flexibility, the lexicon of recognizing our oneness. And so I suppose the way that I interpret that, the way that I make that a practice is just reminding myself that I can take myself out of my comfort zone as a practice, that I can leave my habits and my rhythms and my rituals and go somewhere new, be surrounded by a completely different energy, language, culture, And yeah, that can be literal travel, but it can also just be as simple as putting myself in a new social situation that I don't typically do, because you all know that I'm actually really a hermit and I hate doing things socially. So, but this is, this is the gift. The gift is to expand the aperture of our lens by placing ourselves in new situations. Final piece of True North wisdom, that moment, that moment when she described realizing that she could be free, that she could allow herself to know what she had always known deep inside and unknow all the reasons why she thought she couldn't be that free and just let go, let go of the need to belong to a belief system that didn't work for her. And I guess the application for me is just this ongoing embrace of my own freedom to fall through the maps and to be okay with it. What if we didn't have to justify ourselves anymore, not even to ourselves? What if we could just be free enough to say, this is it, this is good enough, and believe that our choice was somehow divinely imbued? (laughs) Imagine that. 
That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, if you are enjoying these conversations of unknowing, I want to invite you to become a community member. This podcast is brought to you only because of the patrons that support it. And I need your help. I hate asking for help. It is not my strong suit, but I suppose it's an opportunity for me to practice the knowledge that we're all in this together. So if this show means something to you, I want to invite you to give as a patron. The giving tiers begin at $5 a month. That's like the price of a latte. Come have coffee with me once a month and become a community member. There's so many benefits, including singles before anybody else hears them or before they're released, writing reflections, behind the scenes content, access to the unknowing learning platform, and so much more. I hope you'll join me there. To become a patron, just check out the notes section on this podcast. There's a quick, easy link that will take you there. And remember, in the words of Rebecca Solnit, leave the door open for the unknown, the door into the dark. That's where the most important things come from, where you yourself came from, and where you will go.